0: If you grew up watching James and the Giant Peach, then you're going to want to watch today's episode until the very end. Because not only am I going to compare every detail of Henry Selick's masterpiece with the truly bizarre book that inspired it, I'm also going to cover how the folks over at Puffin Books almost ruined the story for modern audiences with their insane censorship that explicitly went against the wishes of the book's author, Rawal Dahl. Now, for those who aren't familiar with James's adventures on the Giant Peach, you're in for a wild ride. A ride that is full of giant bugs, sky-dwelling monsters, and child abuse. Which, now that I'm saying it out loud, doesn't sound like much fun, but I promise it is. Because that's how all of Rewald Dahl's books are. From James, to Matilda, to the BFG, to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Everyone follows a pint-sized hero who has to use ingenuity, creativity, and courage to solve their problems. Sure, they can get scary and borderline inappropriate at times, but that's how life is. And I think that Dahl understood that stories like James's empower the kids who read them to confront the scary obstacles they encounter on their own adventures. Which is why it blows my mind that anyone would try to censor his work least of all the publishers he entrusted with his legacy. But before we get too deep into that scandal, we should probably go through the story itself first so you can fully grasp how close it was to being ruined forever. I'm all about hand gestures this episode. I'm Italian, okay? They got a mind of the own. Be warned, this is gonna be a fun episode and an infuriating one. So just sit back, relax, sacrifice those like and subscribe buttons to the gods and enjoy. One of the first things I noticed when I sat down to re-watch James and the Giant Peach is that the screenwriters did an incredible job staying accurate to the book. Lucky for us, there are still enough differences for us to explore this episode, and even luckier, those differences get pretty dark. But the opening acts in particular mirror each other almost perfectly. Let's look at the beginning of the film. It opens with a shot of James living his perfect life with his perfect family, enjoying a beautiful day on the beach. Meanwhile, the book tells us that, until he was four years old, James Henry Trotter, not to be confused with Harry James Potter, had a happy life. He lived peacefully with his mother and father in a beautiful house beside the sea. There were always plenty of other children for him to play with, and there was the sandy beach for him to run about on and the ocean to paddle in it was the perfect life for a small boy. The most notable difference in these scenes is that in the movie, we actually meet his mother and father. While cloud watching, they teach him about looking at things another way a message that'll appear again at the end of the movie. And they also place a special emphasis on going to New York City, something the book doesn't do at all. In both versions of the story, James's parents are also killed immediately, devoured by a rhinoceros in 35 seconds flat. The movie presents the rhinoceros as some kind of spiritual being that appears to be a manifestation of James's fears, but in the book, it's a literal rhinoceros that escaped from the London Zoo. Then again, it was likely literal in the movie too, but the audience only sees it in James's dreams and in animated sequences where it's in its storm cloud form. After James's parents die, he's forced to move in with his Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker, two scum-of-the-earth human beings who mentally, emotionally, and physically abuse James on a daily basis. They live in a dilapidated house at the top of a hill that overlooks the land for miles around but poor James can only imagine the wonders the world contains because he's not allowed to leave the property or play with the local children. Instead, Sponge and Spiker make him do all the chores while they sit on their respective fat and bony butts. At the start of chapter two, we're told that James has been enduring his aunt's abuse for three years. That means he's seven years old at this point, but the illustrations the book gives us makes it look like he served at least a dime in Shawshank. By the way, the illustrations that you're seeing were done by Nancy Econ Burkert and come from a first edition print of the book, which was published in 1961. I'll also be sprinkling in some of Quentin Blake's illustrations from the 1995 reprint because those are pretty great too. Anyway, in chapter two, James is hard at work chopping wood while his nasty ants enjoy refreshing lemonade and making up little poems about their supposed good looks, which we actually get to hear in the movie. I do declare As lovely as a rose, just feast your eyes upon my face. Observe my shapely nose. Behold my heavenly silky locks. And if I take off both my socks, you'll see my dainty toes. (laughs) But don't forget, my dearest sponge, how much your tummy shows. (laughs) But when poor James hits his breaking point, where he's just physically and mentally exhausted, he starts to cry. And this is putting a damper on his aunt's day, so they tell him to get out of their sight. And it's at this point that Dahl really lays on his trademark weirdness. In the middle of James crying his eyes out, a small old man with a huge bald head emerges from the bushes. He's wearing a dark green suit and in a creepy voice, he says, come closer to me, little boy, come right up close to me and I will show you something wonderful. You know, a lesser man would make a risque joke about that choice of phrasing, and I am that lesser man. I'm just glad he didn't tell James to put his hand in his pocket. Instead, he pulls out a small white paper bag and while standing so close to James, that James can feel and smell his hot, bitter, musty breath He reveals that in the bag are little glowing green things that look like stones or crystals. But in the movie, they look like radioactive macaroni noodles. When James asks what they are, the mysterious man replies that they're crocodile tongues. 1,000 long, slimy crocodile tongues boiled up in the skull of a dead witch for 20 days and nights with the eyeballs of a lizard. Add the fingers of a young monkey, the gizzard of a pig, the beak of a green parrot, the juice of a porcupine and three spoonfuls of sugar. Stir for another week and then let the moon do the rest. Now, up to this point, the movie has recreated this interaction almost exactly, but the context for them meeting is a little different. Instead of it happening after Sponge and Spiker tell James and his orphan tears to get lost, it takes place after James rescues the spider from them and runs outside to set it free. But another huge difference is that in the book, the mysterious man tells James to add the green things to a jug of water, 10 hairs from his head, and when the water starts to boil, to drink it. While well, in the movie, he doesn't say what to do with them at all. He just says they contain a lot of magic and not to lose them. Another noticeable difference is that the movie's version of this man kind of resembles Roald Dahl, which I think was a nice touch, while the book version looks like Azog the White Orc had a baby with a streeter chin. Where the versions reconverge is what happens next. While running inside to make use of this new magic, James wipes out, ripping the bag open and setting the crocodile tongues free. And while the poor kid scrambles to salvage them, it only takes a few seconds before they've burrowed into the dirt, where the only possible recipients of their magic are bugs in the roots of the peach tree. This is when the ants show up again. They see James lying on the ground and instead of helping him up, they yell that he needs to get back to work. Only before he can even chop one more log, he hears one of his ants scream. And when he turns around, he sees a peach has sprouted from one of the tree branches. But that's not all. That lone peach appeared to be growing. It was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And in another minute, this mammoth fruit was as large and round and fat as Aunt Sponge herself and probably just as heavy. The peach finally stops growing when it's the size of the tree it was growing from. And while the fat ant just wanted to gobble it up, big surprise, the skinny ant saw it as a money-making opportunity. Once again, even this little detail is perfectly reflected in the film. It smells delicious. No. It smells like money. Soon enough, Spiker's plan has been fully realized. The giant peach is officially the eighth wonder of the world. Sorry, King Kong. And they're making cash hand over fist by selling tickets to see it. But naturally, James doesn't get to participate in the excitement. Even though he's the reason the peach sprouted, the ants lock him up all day long and only let him out to clean up the trash that the sightseers leave behind. It's not exactly clear how long this goes on for, it could be just one day or maybe a few, but one night, after James had been sent outside to clean, he finds himself staring at the peach in total amazement, and he decides that, while the ants are busy counting their money, he's going to climb the fence to get a closer look. Upon doing this, he happens to notice there is a hole in the side of the peach, and after looking a little closer, he realizes that's no hole, that's a tunnel. I had a similar experience when I took your mom out on a date this weekend. Now, James figured that his life was pretty crap and that dying inside a collapsed peach was preferable to one more minute of living with his aunts. So he climbed into the tunnel, bracing himself for what he might find inside. This is the moment in the movie where he transforms into his animated self, which is explained by him eating a piece of the peach that the crocodile tongue had burrowed into. But this kind of transformation was obviously not necessary in the book. So when Book James loses his crocodile tongues, they're all gone for good. Back to the tunnel, James continues to crawl deeper and deeper into it until he reaches a solid wall, which he realizes is the peach pit. and after giving it a little push, a doorway opens up and he crawls through that too, only to regret his decision immediately. Before James had time to look around and take in his new surroundings, he heard several voices say, look who's here, we've been waiting for you and when his eyes finally adjusted to the dim lighting inside the peach, he was horrified at the creatures those voices came from. Surrounding him were giant bugs. A ladybug, a spider, a grasshopper, a centipede, an earthworm, a silkworm, and a glowworm. All of these nasty beasts appear in the movie as well, except for the silkworm. But spoiler alert, he doesn't do much of anything through the whole story, so it makes sense that neither the writers nor animators wanted to deal with him. Anyway, just like in the film, James initially worries that the bugs are going to eat him, but they laugh at the idea, saying that he's one of their crew now, Then he asks how they all got so big, and they replied that they ate the glowing green things that were digging through the dirt. Next, we get a little sample of everyone's personalities, which are all reflected pretty accurately in the movie as well. The grasshopper is a refined gentleman. The earthworm is blind and constantly stressed about his imminent death. The centipede is a pest and proud of it. The spider is tender-hearted and goes out of her way to make web beds for all of her roommates. The ladybug is similar to the spider and the glowworm gives off old lady vibes. The biggest differences in their portrayals are that none of them are described as having East Coast or Russian accents. Also, their costumes are a little different. Like for some reason, the spider is wearing a chef's hat and the centipede looks like he's in a barbershop quartet. Well, after James gets his introductions out of the way, it's officially bedtime. And after spending the next two hours untying the centipede's 42 shoes and placing them neatly along the side of his bed, he's finally able to pass out. The following morning, James wakes up to the sound of the centipede chopping away at the stem that connects the peach to the tree. And within a few moments, that connection's been severed, allowing the peach to roam free or I guess I should say roll-free. This is where our first major difference between the book and movie appears, and in true Messed Up Origins fashion, it's pretty messed up. Remember how in the movie, after the peach starts to roll, Sponge and Spiker try to escape its path in their car, only to end up nearly getting crushed? (sighs) Well, in the book, something similar happens, but they don't have a car to protect them. Instead, the peach rolls directly over them and crushes them to death. In the words of Dahl, there was a crunch, and then there was silence. And behind it, Aunt Sponge and Spiker lay ironed out upon the grass as flat and thin and lifeless as a couple of paper dolls cut out of a picture book. Rip. Now, if you've seen the movie, then you already know what happens next. The peach continues to roll down the hill all the way through the streets of London, causing a whole mess of chaos in the process. And eventually, they wind up rolling off a cliff and landing in the ocean. This is much to the bugs dismay because so few of them can swim. And let me tell you, these bugs are lucky that James is with them. Otherwise, they would have surely been consumed by panic and fear. After James explains they won't have to swim because the peach is floating, they start freaking out over not having any food. And once again, James points out that their whole ship is made of food. is made of food. More than they could possibly eat on their journey. Speaking of their journey, in the movie, we learn right away that the S.S. Peach is headed to New York City, which just so happens to be the perfect place for these pests. But at this point in the book, the crew has no idea where they're going. Despite that, their spirits stay high because they have James to rely on. Now, while the crew gets settled in for their adventure, I wanna take a quick moment to let you all know that our community has an adventure of our own coming up. And you're invited. I'm partnering with Trova Trip to give our community the opportunity of a lifetime to travel to Ireland with a whole bunch of our fellow folklore and mythology nerds. You can basically think of it as a study abroad trip, only instead of writing papers and studying for tests, our only concern is seeing the most awe inspiring sites that Ireland has to offer. Sites like the Rock of Keshel, the Ring of Kerry, Adair Village, the Cliffs of Mohair, and Connemara National Park, where we'll get to go on a kayak tour and don't worry i am not in charge of leading this thing i'll be crushing pints of guinness alongside you all while two local guides accompany us the whole time answering all of our questions and helping us make the most of this experience the trip is booked for june 5th 2024 to june 12th so eight days total and those who want to join can follow the Trova trip link in the description and pinned comment to reserve your spots. Two important caveats though. Number one, the cost of the trip is $3,900, and that covers all of your hotel reservations, the local guides, transportation between destinations, and transfers to and from the airport. You do not have to pay the full fee at once either. All you need is a 25% deposit, and that just needs to be paid off at least 60 days before the trip. And the second caveat is there are only 14 spots left left, eight of which will get a $100 early bird discount. So if you know you want to see the Emerald Isle in this lifetime, you may want to jump on it soon. Remember, that link is in the description and pinned comment. I hope to see you there. Now, unfortunately for James and his new friends, they don't get to enjoy their time on the peach for very long before there's a very real emergency. Their peach, which is currently floating in the ocean, gets swarmed by sharks. And I don't just mean two or three sharks. There are at least a 100 gathered around them furiously attacking the peach in the hopes of sinking it so they can munch on the juicy bug sitting on top. Fans of the movie will no doubt remember a very similar emergency taking place, but instead of a bunch of little sharks, it's a massive mechanical one. Fun fact, this is one of the few parts of the movie that wasn't made with stop motion. Instead, the animators opted for a new cutting edge technology called computer-generated imaging, or CGI, to create this monstrosity? Well, in both versions of the story, it's James who comes up with the escape plan. He noticed that a flock of seagulls had been gathering over them for a while, waiting for their opportunity to snatch the fattest worm they had ever seen. So he suggests they use the worm as bait to lure the seagulls to them. When the seagulls get close enough, they use threads spun by the spider and the silkworm to tie little leashes around their necks. And before long, they have a whopping five 501 seagulls attached to the peach, just enough to lift it out of the water, but not enough to be out of range of the sharks. It's the 502nd seagull that gets them in the clear. And curiously, when the grasshopper flies down to the base of the peach to inspect the damage, he finds that there's almost none to speak of. It turns out that sharks are pretty terrible at eating giant peaches. Because their noses stick out so much farther than their mouths, there is no way for them to get their teeth into the vast smooth surface, similar to when a small dog tries to get its mouth around a tennis ball. In other words, our heroes were never in that much danger at all. It was all in their heads, which is reminiscent of the lesson the movies try to teach us. Probably not a coincidence. Now at risk of making this presentation kind of confusing, I feel like it's my duty to mention that the previous discussion the crew had about what they're going to eat on their journey doesn't happen in the movie until after they defeat the shark. Uh-huh. Is made of food. Oh. And then the centipede breaks out into a musical number about all the food he's tried around the world. The reason I wanted to mention it is the lyrics to this song come directly from the book, and while I sadly can't actually play it for you without getting a copyright strike, I just love how dedicated these writers were to honoring the source material. Following that train of thought, after the panic from the shark dies down, the book version of the grasshopper starts playing music for his crew. There's a very similar scene in the movie where he plays the violin for James and even gives him a little music lesson. However, the book specifically says that he's playing his body like a violin. The bow of the violin, the part that moved, was his back leg. The strings of the violin, the part that made the sound, was the edge of his wing. He was using only the top of his back leg, the thigh, and he was stroking this up and down against the edge of his wing with incredible skill, sometimes slowly, sometimes fast but always with the same easy flowing action. The author uses this scene to teach his young readers a little about the bugs that are accompanying James on his journey. We learn that the grasshopper keeps his ears in his belly, that ladybugs kill the pests that try to harm farmer's crops, and then we hear a very sad story from the spider. It turns out that just last week, she saw Aunt Sponge flush her father down the drain and prior to that, her grandmother had gotten her legs trapped in some drying paint, and her family spent six months sneaking her food until Sponge finally noticed and smashed her with a broom. James sheds a tear from his spider after hearing this and asks if it's unlucky to kill a spider, to which the crew replies with an emphatic yes. After all, Sponge herself ended up getting smashed in the end, and not in the good way. The mere mention of Sponge's death gets the centipede all riled up in a good way. He starts singing a song celebrating the ant's untimely demise and he gets so carried away in the merrymaking that he falls over the edge of the peach and lands in the ocean. Without hesitation, James comes to his rescue. He ties the silkworm silk around his waist and jumps in after the centipede. And after a few minutes, the bugs still on board begin lamenting the deaths of their two companions. This scene bears a strong resemblance to another scene in the film. When Centipede falls asleep at the wheel and gets them lost, he takes it upon himself to track down a compass from one of the nearby shipwrecks, forcing James and Miss Spider to jump in after him and get into a scuffle with Jack Skellington. Jack Skellington? There's even a moment where the bugs accept that their friend was killed, just like in the book. But surprise, surprise, everyone survived and now they can get back to their journey. Now we've hit the end of the book's second act, and this also happens to be where the plot takes a serious detour compared to the events of the movie. You guys are not ready for what part three has in store. First though, I wanna thank our fabulous sponsors who made this behemoth of an episode possible, Squarespace. Just like how James boarded the SS Peach and went on the adventure of a lifetime, you can start a new adventure with Squarespace, and this one is guaranteed to have fewer bugs. Squarespace has made a name for themselves by empowering us web design novices with the ability to create beautiful websites easily, efficiently, and affordably. To start, you get to choose from a huge selection of award-winning templates, and then you can customize them how you see fit with their intuitive drag and drop interface. They also give you access to marketing tools and analytics, you can make sure your website is running efficiently and on the rare occasion it's not, they offer personalized customer support 24/7. So if you wanna join me, James, and the thousands of mere mortals who didn't let our dreams stay dreams, just go to squarespace.com slash johnsolo to start a completely free trial. And when your site is ready for launch, use code johnsolo to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. At the start of Chapter 27, we learn that because airplanes are so loud, all the creatures who inhabit the sky hear them and have time to hide. But because the peach is silently floating along, James and the bugs on board get to see some amazing things. The most notable is, without a doubt, the Cloud Men. These are tall, wispy, wraith-like figures that are responsible for creating various kinds of weather. They take wisps of cloud and reshape them into hailstones, dump buckets of water to make rain, and even paint rainbows with their beautiful colors. The entire crew finds it incredible to watch these cloud men work. Well, everyone except for the earthworm who's blind and the centipede who for no reason at all decides to yell at the cloud men, calling them idiots, and starts making rude gestures with all 42 of his legs. I'm sure you can imagine what those gestures are. Naturally, this disrespect infuriates the cloud men who apparently speak English and are even familiar with our nonverbal forms of communication. And they start winging hailstones at the peach, poking all kinds of holes in it and battering the poor bugs. The peach continues to float along and soon enough encounters another group of cloud men. These guys are painting a massive rainbow and begin lowering it in the path of the peach. With no way to turn their vessel around, the crew has no choice but to brace themselves for impact. And when they crash, all hell breaks loose. The ropes tied to the seagulls get all tangled up with the ropes tied to the rainbow, meaning that the peach is stuck floating in place and vulnerable to the Cloud Men's attacks. And by attacks, I mean the Cloud Men start throwing everything but the kitchen sink at them, literally. Paint buckets, paint brushes, step ladders, dead rats. You know, the usual painting supplies. Then the centipede has a whole bucket of purple paint dumped on it. And within a few moments, the magic rainbow paint solidifies, essentially turning the centipede into a statue. Lucky for our heroes, the Cloud Men were so busy throwing things, there weren't enough of them left to hold on to the ropes, which caused the rainbow to fall and allowed the birds to get untangled. Finally, Finally, the Peach floated out of the Cloud Men's throwing range, and the crew had a ball of a time brainstorming ways to free the centipede from his purple prison. Grasshopper suggested peeling him like a banana, Ladybug said they could rub it off with sandpaper, and the Earthworm, who liked the centipede the least, said that if they could pull on centipede's tongue really hard, they could turn him inside out and he'd have all new skin. I don't think that's right, but I don't know enough about centipedes to dispute it. Well, in the middle of all this debating, the crew heard a booming voice shouting from above their heads. And when they looked up to see what could possibly be waiting for them now, they just about crapped their pants. Directly above them was a gigantic black cloud, swirling, twisting, echoing with thunder. Amid all the booming, James heard someone shout, on with the faucets. And suddenly the bottom of the cloud opened up, unleashing a solid mass of water. And note that I said solid mass, this wasn't your typical rainstorm. It was the equivalent of a waterfall pouring directly onto their heads. The crew couldn't speak, see, or breathe as the water fell on top of them. And as James held on for dear life, he accepted that this might be the end. I'm happy to say James was wrong though. Eventually the waterfall ceased and while just about everyone was soaking wet and miserable, they were alive. The only one who came out of that experience with a smile was the centipede, who had finally been freed from his cocoon. As the peach continued to float through the dimly lit sky, they saw a number of spoopy sights. Cloud men were beating drums to make thunder, turning the cranks on snow machines, and at one point, an immense bat-like creature flew over the peach and scared them all. After a long and night, the Peach approaches the first mass of land they'd seen since leaving London. But the whole crew is confused because this land is covered with tall buildings, which they'd never seen in tea and crumpet land. That's when James realizes they're in New York. This is the first time the city's been mentioned since the story started, but they're all still ecstatic to have arrived. He suggests letting the seagulls go one at a time until they start to descend, another brilliant idea but they're only able to let a few loose before a plane heading into New York from Chicago rips through the strings and sends them free-falling into the city below. Now, we have some time before the peach smashes into the earth, so I want to point out that in the film, their crash landing is actually caused by the rhino storm cloud colliding with them. And I could be wrong, but I believe this was inspired by the insane storm they just endured in the book. A bit of a bummer that they couldn't incorporate the cloud men, but I'd have to imagine there is no way to pull that off with stop motion. I mean, the Rhino wasn't stop motion either, they pulled off the effect by engineering a fabric skin model in a tank of water, but it's still a practical effect, while animating hundreds of wispy cloud men attacking them would have required CGI, which they were really trying to limit. Anyway, oh, would you look at that, they're still falling. This is where the book and movies plots converge once again and stay that way. The peach falls for about 30 seconds and that whole time the New Yorkers are watching with bated breath assuming that this unidentified falling object is a bomb but when it lands on the point of the Empire State Building and doesn't explode, they get seriously confused. Firemen and policemen from all over New York rush to the top of the Empire State Building, and when they see the creatures sitting on the peach, many of them faint from fear. Luckily, James is there to calm their nerves and handle all the introductions, and after he sings a song about the kindness of each of his companions, 100 construction workers hook up ropes, ladders, and pulleys to safely lower the peach to the ground. As far as the mayor of New York was concerned, the arrival of James and his companions was cause for celebration. They throw a parade to honor him, his bug buddies, as well as the giant peach, and James receives the warmest welcome of his life. Then, when a little girl asks him if she can have a taste of the peach, James says everyone can have a bite. It won't keep forever anyway, and at that moment, hundreds of kids started crawling all over it eating it like ants and savoring every bite. Before long, only the big brown stone from the center of the peach remained and just like in the film, it was moved to Central Park to serve as a permanent monument to James and as his house. All of his friends started new lives of their own, a detail the movie also incorporates with the montage of newspapers at the end, but they never forgot about James and would visit him on a regular basis. Meanwhile, James Henry Trotter, who was once the saddest and loneliest boy in the whole world, had all the friends he could imagine. Every day he was visited by hundreds of children who wanted to see his house and listen to the story of his adventure. And that, Mere Mortals, is the story you just heard. Now, can you believe that someone would try to censor it? I've warned my publishers that if they later on so much as change a single comma in one of my books, they will never see another word from me. When I am gone, if that happens, then I'll wish Mighty Thor knocks very hard on their heads with his Mjolnir or I will send along the enormous crocodile to gobble them up. I just hope to God that will never happen to any of my writings as I am lying comfortably in my Viking grave. Bruh. So normally with episodes like this, you know, big ones where I focus on a single story, I like to put some spotlight on the lesson that tale is intended to teach. I'm still gonna do that with today's story, but I also wanna bring your attention to the way it was almost ruined forever by the folks over at Puffin Books and their partners at Inclusive Minds. During my research, I stumbled on a bit of controversy surrounding James and the Giant Peach. This article published by The Telegraph, titled The Rewriting of Roald Dahl, enlightened me on the matter. And by the way, I paid a whole dollar to access this, so... Link to my Patreon is in the description. To put it simply, earlier this year, Puffin released a statement saying they reviewed the language used in Roald Dahl's books to ensure that they can continue to be enjoyed by people with modern sensibilities. What this means is they gave themselves permission to edit his work however they deemed necessary. That includes altering, adding, replacing, and straight up omitting any words and phrases that could be deemed insensitive and saying they overreached is an understatement. They made hundreds of changes to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, and more than a dozen other books where they removed or changed any descriptions relating to age, weight, mental health, and gender. Now, I'm not a fan of any form of censorship. It causes me physical pain whenever I have to bleep cuss words and blur out nudity in Renaissance era paintings just so YouTube can keep its advertisers happy. But on the surface, I could see this being a not completely terrible idea because these books are meant for kids, right? The last thing you want to do is introduce them to a way of thinking that causes them to have animosity towards or think less of those who are different than them. Roald Dahl actually agreed with this to a certain extent. When the first edition of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Oompa Loompas were black pygmies who Wonka imported from the deepest and darkest part of the African jungle. And he pays them with cocoa beans instead of money. that this may have been Dahl's way of commenting on the exploitation of migrant workers or the labor market in the UK opening up to citizens from India and the Caribbean but that's not something that kids were going to pick up on and it made the adults reading the books to them uncomfortable. So within five years time, he gave in to public pressure and made Oompa Loompa's fantasy creatures from Loompa land with white skin and golden hair. But this example is just me trying to give the editors the benefit of the doubt and where the potentially positive impacts of censorship end. Because I read through every single one of the dozens of changes these sensitivity readers made to James's adventure, and yes, that's really what they're called, and not a single one falls under the same umbrella as the original portrayal of Loompa Loompas. Instead, all they accomplished was making the fun, magical, humorous, tense, and exciting moments less impactful. In other words, they weakened Dahl's writing. And just for you, I made a list of the best of the worst changes. To start, the line I quoted earlier, In another minute, this mammoth fruit was as round and large and fat as Aunt Sponge herself, and probably just as heavy, was completely cut, presumably to spare the feelings of any fat children reading the book though so I'm 99% sure that none of them were identifying with the gluttonous child abuser in the first place. About twice the height of ordinary men was turned into about twice the average height of a person. I think their goal here was not to alienate tall women, but on average, men actually are taller than women. So to change this also completely changes the visual that's conjured up in the reader's mind. Idiots, he yelled, became oi, saving children around the world from ever knowing the word idiot exists. Every mention of policemen and firemen was altered to police officers and firefighters because how dare he imply that only men can have those jobs? I mean, he wasn't really, but apparently that's how the editors took it. Six more big strong men fainted when they saw him was changed to six more people fainted once again, changing the mental image and lessening the impact of the line, let go you idiot was changed to let go you clown, which I find very interesting because to me, it sounds like these ultra kind and inclusive editors are equating clowns to idiots. This description of the Cloudmen Society, there were caves everywhere running into the cloud and at the entrances to the caves, the Cloud Men's wives were crouching over little stoves with frying pans in their hands frying snowballs for their husband's suppers was shortened to omit any reference to the wives cooking because that's misogynist, and women who enjoy cooking dinner for their husbands should be ashamed for setting the suffrage movement back decades. Also, every use of the word cloud men was changed to cloud people because ladies can be cloud men too. They just can't cook for their families. Now, this is just the tip of the iceberg, but to me, these changes are the epitome of the saying, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. These sensitivity readers, AKA unpaid interns majoring in gender studies, are literally reading these books through the lens of, how can this be taken the wrong way? which may just be the most destructive lens that one can view life through. One of my favorite adages besides the hammer one is never attribute to malice what can be explained by stupidity. The world is not out to get you and choosing to interpret everything as a personal attack and that's what it is by the way, your choice to do that, is going to make every road that you travel more difficult than necessary. And guess what? Life actually is difficult for everybody, regardless of upbringing, culture, and creed. We are all perpetually freaking out on the inside, including me right now as I film this. And the only way to overcome that is to continuously encounter ideas that make us uncomfortable or even upset us and learn to cope with them. Not that any of these original lines were actually offensive or written with malicious intent, but that seems to be how these sensitivity readers think that children are going to interpret them. Another one of my favorite sayings is, prepare your child for the road, not the road for your child. Because the latter is impossible. And when your child inevitably slips and falls, it's going to hurt them far more than it otherwise would have because they'll never have experienced the struggle of enduring the pain picking themselves up and soldiering on. And listen, just to be very clear, I am not saying that children's books should be filled with gratuitous derogatory terminology, but these sensitivity readers at inclusive minds are pretending they're doing future generations a favor when really they're just softening them up so society has an easier time chewing them up and spitting them out. Meanwhile, they pretend to have the moral high ground and feel great about themselves while doing it. I mean, listen to this quote, which comes directly from a sensitivity reader who used to work at inclusive minds. I understand the argument some say about censorship and diminishing the author's voice. However, after recently rereading some children's books by Dahl, some language stood out as offensive, while other terms have become outdated over time. Here, sensitivity readers can make suggested adaptations to make them more accessible to children. Right, offensive, outdated terms like boy, girl, fireman, and strong. Like, does this guy not realize that by all omitting words like strong because it could be offensive to those who are weak, he's actually implying that there's something wrong with being weak and vulnerable. He's validating their insecurity. Again, I would be a lot more understanding if their edits were like the changes Dahl made to the Oompa Loompas, but it's not even comparable. The only omission out of dozens that comes anywhere close to that is when the grasshopper sees that they're about to be attacked by more cloud men and says, I would rather be fried alive and eaten by a Mexican and they cut out the Mexican part. But the thing is, there's no slur being used and it's not saying anything derogatory. Fried grasshoppers, or chapalunas, are actually eaten in Mexico and a number of Central American countries. Like, would it also be offensive if he said he'd rather be baked into a pizza and eaten by an American? I don't think so, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that one. The ego and entitlement on these editors is just mind-blowing to me. Where do they get off changing the words of a legendary children's author who clearly understood the stories kids wanted to read and wrote his stories with the intention of not only entertaining, but also empowering them? Because as I touched on in the intro, that is why Dahl's books are still bestsellers decades after their release. I'm not saying they don't touch on controversial subjects or that Dahl himself was perfect, but look at James and the Giant Peach as a whole. It's a story about a kid who loses everything good in his life, endures years of abuse, then makes friends with a crew of creatures that society perceives as ugly, gross, and scary, but actually do a lot of good for us. There's a few occasions where James feels insecure about himself and his ideas, but he's encouraged by his new friends to put himself out there and get spectacular results. Then, after the adventure of a lifetime, one that's full of danger and darkness and encounters with the unknown, he's celebrated as a hero, and Dahl says verbatim that the saddest, loneliest boy in the world ends up with more friends than he could have ever imagined. That is a beautiful message that any child would appreciate hearing, and call me crazy, but I don't think that saying Aunt Sponge has fat arms would make it any less impactful. But this is the part where I ask what you all think. Whether you feel strongly one way or the other, or even find yourself somewhere in the middle, share your thoughts with me on social media. Could be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or even TikTok. Links to those are in the description. Also let it be known that after Puffin Books announced that they'd be censoring Doll's masterpieces, fans responded with so much backlash that they walked their statement back and that they're now going to be selling both the originals and the versions that had the soul sucked out of them. Wanna take a wild guess which one is selling better? Now, if you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and sacrifice those five star and follow buttons to the gods because I plan on doing more deep dives into doll's books and other classics in the coming months. Last but not least, I wanna thank every single one of you for watching. It's a bit cliche, but the fact that you made it all the way to this point in the episode means the world to me, and I am forever grateful for your support. I'll see you again next week when I dive into the very messed up origins of Orphan Tears, Until then, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first.